Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, a movie discussion podcast where we do movie discussions where the genre in the movie is decided by the role of a die, and we do interviews also. Uh, this is episode 202, and I'm joined by writer, historian, Gregory Mank to talk about Svengali and uh, the John Barrymore version, and I hope everybody will enjoy it. I had an honor having Mr. Mank on the show. Uh, it's just amazing the amount of knowledge and of film that he has. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll talk to you afterwards. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, and this is Steve Turk joining you, and today we're going to be doing a movie discussion on the 1931 classic Svengali, and I'm going to be joined by noted film historian, writer, Gregory Mank. Mr. Mank is back on an episode 110 when he joined us for the James Whale Roundtable episode with Frank Delostrito and Joshua Kennedy, and he's joining us today. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing fine, and it's great to be back here with you again. I'm glad you kept, you and I finally, it took us a long time to get our schedules to match up, to get this this get get the movie rolling and I'm you know the discussion part and I'm glad we finally got to work out. Yeah, so am I. Very much so. And one of the things we talked about, you've you've written a ton, a ton of books. Uh, most of them are historical, you know, where you're going for a lot of information, but you've also recently uh-huh. dabbled into um historical fiction. And as I know we're yes. going to talk about your latest couple of books, because I think your last two books each hit both sides. Well, let's see. The last two, the last two novels, uh, one was called Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie Pray for Us. And what it was, it is, is a um, story that takes place actually in two different periods of time, 1931 and 1967. In 1931, uh, of course, what we do is we talk about the making of Frankenstein that summer and uh, what the uh, problem that occurs there, which is that we have all these inter- very interesting personalities putting this film together. And there's a fictional personality, as far as I know she was fictional, uh, <laughs> who comes sashaying into the story. And uh, her name is Lizzie, and she is a self-proclaimed witch. She performs a black mass at Malibu Lake uh, on weekends. And uh, she becomes. Um, intricately and intimately involved with Colin Clive in the story and all kinds of, of uh, uh, horrific things ensue uh, from that point on. And then there's the, the other part of the story takes place in 1967, which of course was the summer of love, uh, the hippie generation. And as it turns out that this uh, witch uh, has returned, is reincarnated, is uh, she a copycat, whatever, all these things are presented. And uh, she comes back, and of course, some of the characters from Frankenstein are still with us at that point, or as Carla, for example. And um, she comes back, and she uh, creates havoc all over again. And the same policeman who uh, killed her in 1931 is back on the case, trying to stop her again in 1967. So uh, almost all the characters you can think of from Universal at that time who were involved in Frankenstein are dramatized in the novel. Uh, the witch is, uh, quite a horror in of herself. Um, it's, it's, I was surprised having written the book, the number of people who said to me after they read it, that it, uh, it actually did scare them. Um, <laughs> I was a little surprised by that because to me it was sort of like, you know, the story's a hoot, you know, that, that what's happening. 
But it actually got to the point that it, it can, can't get under your skin. It's a pretty, pretty creepy, wild story. Uh, and this is a pretty creepy, wild gal who uh, is the title character. So that one is, uh, again, it's Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie, Pray for Us. The other book is a novel about the um, death of Paul Byrne, who had been the husband for 65 Days and Nights of Gene Harlow. Gene Harlow being the legendary platinum blonde of MGM Studios. And um, in real life, uh, he was found dead uh, in Labor Day weekend of 1932 in their home. She was not there at the time. Uh, His body was found, uh, as I say, on Labor Day. And um, to this day, they have never really come out and said what happened. And here it is all these years later, um, over 90 years later. It's still Hollywood's great unsolved mystery. And this book, uh, in fictional terms, solves it. Um, I'm not saying it solves it from the point of view of history, but again, it solves it again from the point of view of fiction that's involved. Uh, same policeman, Porter Down from the other book, uh, comes in here and gets involved and gets, uh, again, intimately involved with the various characters. And there's all kinds of, of, of wild characters in here. There's a, there's a, a female pornographer uh, who's a real horror in herself. It's funny, somebody uh, who had read the book called My Wife, and she said, after she'd read the book, and she said, um, this female pornographer's character's name in it is Annie Spry, and my wife's friend, Leslie, called up and said, uh, you know, I finished reading Greg's book, and I know some of the characters are real and some of them are fictional. Please tell me that Annie Spry was fictional. Please tell me no such person ever lived. Um, so she was the, the get under your skin character in that book. Um, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating story in of its own right, the, the, the death of Paul Byrne and, and all that Harlow had to go through thereafter. And um, with uh, connecting the dots fictionally, because it looks like nobody's ever going to connect the dots historically at this late date, uh, it was a lot of fun to write. And um, I think it's be a lot of fun for uh, uh, any fan of, of uh, classic Hollywood uh, to read. Uh, lots of um, lots of inside stuff, and and a great deal of it uh, built on actual fact um, with both books. You know, uh, places, locales, dates, all these things. Uh, very, 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 you know, very accurate. So, um, so there we are. And as far as a uh, as far as a nonfiction book, the most recent book is a book about the making of the 1939 film of Mice and Men. Uh, starring Lon Chaney as Lenny and uh, Burgess Meredith as George. And this book was lucky, uh, great, great, great good luck on this book because I was able to get the actual production reports from the studio. So every day is basically covered in the book. What they shot on this day, what they did here, what happened there, where, why they ran into a problem on here, uh, all the censorship, critical censorship problems, and as you can understand with that film. Um, so uh, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the uh, nonfiction entry of the season for me is, is the... Uh, as the Mice and Men book, uh, and uh, they are available now on Amazon. And um, the Mice and Men book, the full title is of Mice and Men, Me- Mental Enfeeblement, Racism, and Mercy Killing in 1939 Hollywood. Very different world back then. So making a film like that at that point was an incredible challenge. And this book will tell me, tells you how they did it. I really enjoyed that. So hard. That brings me up to date. <laughs> I bought the book of mice and men from you at the um, summer monster bash. And, um, I really <laughs> enjoy it. And, um, I also enjoyed your talk that went with it, which you did at monster Thank bash you. and you did also at mid Atlantic nostalgic convention. And I think it adds a lot of details with it and that kind of stuff. And 
I just, but I really enjoyed that movie. I remember seeing it um, when I was a lad. It was on TV, and it just struck a chord with me watching it at that time. And, and so yeah. I was automatically it's, it's drawn to movie. it. Very, very powerful movie. Yeah. Oh, it, it's one of those ones. When I say enjoy, it's just the acting is spectacular. The, the, the subject matter is just so interesting and so well portrayed mm-hmm. in the movie yeah. that for people that have not seen of mice and men with Burgess Meredith and Lon Chaney Jr. Um, you must see it and, and, you know, to really appreciate the film and take it in that context of 1939. And then of course, you know, read the book and then you can get the full details with it, but it's a definite must watch movie. You know, I, I can't recommend more. Thank you. It is a terrific film. I love it. That's not the film we're here to talk about. When I asked you to come on the show, <laughs> normally, ladies and gentlemen, we roll a die or dice to decide the genre of the movie. But certain circumstances or certain people, I'm just like, no, 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 you can pick whatever movie you want to pick. And I did that with Greg. I said, Greg, just, just, just pick a movie, any movie that we haven't covered yet, and we can go for it. And you, of course, picked? Golly. 1931 Svengali, and uh, you know, there's, there's there's so much to say about this film, and um, uh, I, I guess the best way for me to start is to talk about my own personal introduction to it, and uh, the book, and the movie, and everything else, and that was this, and that is that it was a very, very uh, important day in my life back in, the, in when I was 15 years old, and I went downtown, and I bought a book called The Pictorial History of the Talkies by Daniel Bloom. Pictorial History of the Talkies. I don't know if it's, if, I'm sure it's not in print anymore, but it's probably available different places. Uh, and um, at that point, I went up to about 1958. I guess I bought it at some point in the, in the late 1960s. And uh, I was a teenager, as I say, about 15. And um, brought the book home and saw a lot of actors in that book. Who, you know, it was all pictorial. And, and uh, uh, a lot of actors whom I had never seen, never had heard of before. And there in the 1931 section, on the same page as a picture of Karloff from Frankenstein and Lugosi from Dracula, there was this picture from a film called Svengali. And there was a picture of John Barrymore in the role of Svengali, who is an, a wicked hypnotist. All right. And of course, the, the, the makeup that he used was very similar to the, uh, the illustrations by Du Maurier in the, in the first edition of the book, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, he has a long beard. He looks like Lucifer. He really does. He has the long, lanky hair and the long beard and the, with the hellish curl again and everything. And he really does. He looks he looks like a Lucifer. And uh, John Barrymore is standing there, and he has this, this wild-eyed glance looking at the leading lady, who's Marion Marsh, and a lot about her coming up. And um, I looked at that man, and I was mesmerized, mesmerized appropriately, since it's a movie about hypnosis. I was mesmerized by his appearance. There was just something about him that just, it just yelled the word spellbinder, all right? Uh, they used to do the word spellbinder about actors, that they were, they were so brilliant, they could walk on stage and without doing anything, just standing there and looking at the audience, everybody would just absolutely stare at them and be fascinated by them. Well, this wasn't even Barrymore in the flesh, this was just a picture of Barrymore as <laughs> in a book, all right? And just, but just looking at him in this picture, I thought, wow, that man has got something crazy going on inside of him. He's, this man's got some kind of wild circus going on in that, in, in behind those eyes, all right? This is, this must have been some remarkable man. And of course, later I found out that he had been actually, uh, in, in his day, considered the world's greatest 
as we put it, the world's greatest living actor. I mean, you can't really have the world's greatest dead actor, I guess, but he was the world's <laughs> greatest living actor as Warner Brothers promoted him. All right. Uh, and um, had, had done remarkable things. Uh, so, so we'll come back to him in a moment. But the other thing that happened was some years after that, this was, this was the summer before uh, Barbara and I were married. We went past an old bookshop in Lancaster and went in, and there was a first edition of the book Trilby, which is actually the same thing as Spengali. Spengali is the hypnotist. Trilby is the leading lady, so to speak, of the story. And there was a first edition. And you can get an idea of the style of the story and the melodrama, the incredible melodrama of the story by just looking at the cover of this hardbound book. On the cover was a picture of, uh, was, was an engraving of a heart. Uh, it was painted gold, and it had great big enormous angel wings sprouting off of this heart, and this heart with angel wings was caught in a spider's web. <laughs> so, you know, you weren't buying a pig and a poke when you bought that book. I mean, you knew you were in for a really melodramatic read just by looking at the cover uh, and then looking inside the book, seeing the illustrations by George Marier that he used. Uh, of various characters uh, all throughout, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and it, was, it was a fascinating, riveting book. And um, meanwhile, of course, saw the movie with Barrymore. And, um, and, and he was, he's just brilliant in that film. He is just absolutely mesmerizing. He's funny. He's scary. He's, he's heartbreaking. He, he, by the end, he makes you cry. Uh, he runs the gamut of emotions. And it really is interesting, and because it, it was interesting about at the time that it was released, uh, which I know we'll want to come back to a little later, which is very, very shortly after Dracula. Um, this is a film that came out some, somewhat on the same theme, very shortly, about two and a half months after Dracula had opened. So uh, audiences are kind of getting the same sort of story in a very, very different package uh, when Svengali came out. But I'll, I'll mention this about Barrymore, and, and that which is kind of funny, and that is that where I'm sitting right now, I'm looking up at the uh, at the wall. I have a picture of him up on the wall as Bengali, a portrait of him uh, with an autographed card from him uh, that is um, in, enclosed in there in the picture. And uh, some time ago, my um, my granddaughter and her fiance. Uh, stop by here, and they're they're very very well educated, very bright, very polite, very great great kids, very very smart, uh, very well rounded, very well read. And they came back and they took a look at that picture and they said, "Who is that?" And I said, "Oh, that's John Barrymore." And they of course said, "Who? Who?" And um, I thought that's interesting that they didn't know John Barrymore. I figured everybody knew John Barrymore the way everybody knew Babe Ruth. All right. I mean, this was sort of a, uh, the name Barrymore would be a household name. Well, anyway, the next day <laughs> I, we, we took our dog to the vet. Well, I was down there at the vet. I was up to the, the uh, one of the, one of the uh, nurses down there. And she came out and said, let me just ask you a question. Just if you don't mind. She said, sure. I said, um, what do you know about John Barrymore? And she said, who? And I said, you know, John Barrymore, they, John Barrymore, the actor. Have you ever heard of him? She said, no, no, who? And what's his, what's his name? John, Bar you know, I mean, she was completely at a loss. And there was this man who was about my age, all right? He's sitting over there and he's chuckling in the corner listening to this. I said, did you ever hear of Lionel Barrymore? And she said, no. I said, how about Ethel Barrymore? No. And 
So the man's laughing and said, ask her if she ever heard of Drew Barrymore. I said, did you ever hear Drew Barrymore? Said, of course everybody knows Drew Barrymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, I said, okay, Drew Barrymore is John Barrymore's granddaughter. How's that? She says, okay. So John Barrymore was Drew Barrymore's grandfather. I said, yeah. She said, well, why are you interested in Drew Barrymore's grandfather? I said, I said no, he was an actor too. Oh, okay. So anyway, it's, isn't it incredible the way that the society changes and things change and culture changes and so on and everything else changes? All right, that at this point, that John Barrymore, who had such incredible fame and, and was so well-praised, he was the greatest Hamlet of his generation, so on and so forth, all right, that, that he's largely, he and his, his uh, celebrated family, his brother and sister and, 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 and he, that, that trio, are pretty well forgotten, uh, you know, certainly by younger people and even by older people. I mean, they're, they're, they're long gone and um, long forgotten. So when we talk about him in Svengali, we're talking about, you know, for some of your, some of your listeners, probably not very many of them, but probably many of them listen to this because of their interest in the older films. But uh, some of them that would listen would, would, would also say, you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with John Barrymore. I'm not familiar with his films or something of that nature. Well, we, we have to just kind of point that out because, I, you know, again, to approach this film that he did, this was a big, big deal at the time because he was considered a big, big deal, all right, that he made it uh, and that he was in it and that, um, and that he was considered to be such an incredible talent. And, uh you know, uh, again, the world's greatest living actor uh, at, at that time in 1931. So um, that's my uh, that's my my sad story about John Barrymore and um, uh, about uh, you know where he um, where he is today. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, when you, you and I talk about this, you always reach that certain age when you're talking to either your children, your grandchildren, or younger people, and you'll bring up something. They'll just look at you like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I think it's even worse mm-hmm. nowadays because there's so many different things vying for people's attention that you can talk about yes. things that are relatively current in celebrity mm-hmm. or, or notoriety, and people don't know what you're talking about because they're just drawn exactly. to other things. We're back... When you and I were growing up, the way you could consume media was more narrow. And so people had a more of a general grasp of certain culture in, in society where you can say certain shorthand and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's less likely nowadays. And I remember when I was growing up, um, John, you know, I, I, I knew about the Barrymores because of Drew Barrymore, you know, because when she yes, was in. Sure. Poltergeist. Sure. That's how everybody found that. And you went back and researched it. But I went back and looked, you know, and said, oh, this is what they did. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, they've been gone a very long time. I mean, John died in 1942. So, I mean, he's, he's you know, I mean, you're going back a long way. You're going back a long way for somebody to know that. But it's just, it's just interesting that the, you know, you think that everybody who, who uh, you know, creates, uh, when I say you, I mean the general you, uh, you think that everybody who creates, uh, you know, some kind of fame, they, they, that this, this cultural imprint they make on society is going to last, you know, into the into forever. And it doesn't, you know, it fades. Uh, uh, so no matter, you know, what the fame may be. And it's, it's kind of interesting also from the point of view of if you, uh, well, of course, this will be different at a film convention. But, you know, most people, I think, do know, uh, for example, Boris Karloff or Beta Lugosi or some of the iconic other iconic horror names 
Um, but um, you know, other people, other stars of that of that generation who were, who were great stars at the time, were not really, uh, you know, are, are are kind of falling by the wayside. It's interesting um, re- regarding the story of Bengali that I mentioned about it being sort of similar to Dracula. Um, uh, there's no, you know, blood-sucking fiend in it or anything. But the interesting thing about Spengali, the big, the big cultural thing about the story that was such an impact at the time that it came out. And again, we're talking about a book that came out in 1894. All right, so I mean, we're, that, that's a now. Uh, so, but at the time that it came out, uh, best-selling book, and then uh, it became, you know, a, a, a terrific stage success on the stage. It became multiple silent films. And the big gimmick with Spengali, and, and this is something that can carry over into today, uh, that made it different, was that Spengali was, uh, in the story, very basically, he's a hypnotist. And what happens is he hypnotizes a milkmaid, who is also a model uh, in the Latin Quarter of Paris, uh, into becoming a great singer. Now, I mean, it's kind of a loony story because, I mean, it, it, what happens is he says, listen to her voice. I can, I, by my hypnotic powers, I can... I can do great things with her voice and the way that her, you know, the way that the, her mouth is shaped and so on and so forth to make her the world's greatest singer. And he comes close to doing that. All right. He does make her the world's greatest singer and kind of by kind of putting her into this hypnotic trance in which he's, you know, all powerful over her. And uh, today the, the expression of Svengali is still used in the sense that, you know, so-and-so is some actress, actress is Svengali in the fact, in the sense that, you know, he's, he's her power agent. He's the person that makes her do things. He's the person that uh, guides her career or forces her to do things that she, you know, professional choices that she takes. Um, but the, the interesting thing about Svengali is that we're used to seeing in all the old horror films, the horror hero and the horror heroine walking off together and the fiend of the story being dispatched and destroyed. All right. This one was different. In this one, Spengali died in the book. And a short time afterwards, Trilby, the girl who he hypnotizes, dies as well. It's like he lures her to death from beyond. All right. She belongs to him. All right. In the film, it's even more dramatic the way that they do it, which we'll talk about a little, a little bit later. But, but in the, but in what happens in in the story is is was very, very controversial and and an incredible impact at the time, because everybody expected up to you know by the time that the curtain fell uh, on the film or the play that you know she would be free to the hypnotic trance and she would be going back to her boyfriend who has the incredibly ingenuous name of Little Billy. All right, Little Billy who loves her. And she'll be back with little Billy, but she's not back with little Billy. All right. She belongs to Svengali. And when Svengali dies, she dies. And um, so this was a, it had an incredible power on audiences who went to see it. They weren't, they weren't quite ready for, you know, for this kind of an offbeat dark ending. And uh, it, it, it really nailed them, you know, that, that, that this happened. They kept, you know, it was, it was all end up happily. And we all go home smiling. Was, no, ouch. Oh, my God. She's what? She's dead. He's dead. They're both dead. She didn't, you know, the leading man didn't get her back. Um, you know, this is this is dreadful. Uh, so so that was the, the big gimmick of Svengali was that he actually was, in a sense, successful. He manages, even though he dies and he stopped and in, in his nefarious deeds, he manages to take the girl with him. And so this was the big impact. Of course, compare this to Dracula. We, we 
think about the ending of the film Dracula. You know, Lugosi's being staked in his casket, and we see David Manners and the beautiful Helen Chandler, you know, ascending up through the through Carfax Abbey and heading back home, and she's safe, and then and, and you know, with with and, and you know, everything's fine, and then we can all go, you know, sigh of relief, and that's the way it goes. No, not not in Spengali. It's much much darker ending. So, um, so yeah, so that was a twist nobody expected. And, um, you know, we can think today of certain horror films that are made. There's more of them today in which the, the, the evil seems to triumph. But back in those days, this was, this was a very subversive thing that this would occur. I was going to say, in the, if they would have been more faithful in the play, mm-hmm. in the movie, to the book, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. even young Billy dies at the end of the book. He dies eventually, yes. So That's so- right. He dies shortly after she does. Uh-huh. Because he couldn't Absolutely. live without her, and she couldn't live without. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like this domino effect. So the That's book, exactly it. And the, because the book had mm-hmm. a, that monthly release, what was it in um, Harper's? Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so That's what the, came out originally. That, that, so you can imagine getting that last chapter, getting that last edition, <laughs> the eighth one. You know, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 I can only imagine. You know, the reader is going like, because you're all built up, you're hoping. Oh, Oh, young Billy's going to come through or she's going to realize or whatever. And you get that mm-hmm. last section and then you're just, you're just gut shot. And that's right. That's exactly. This it. is the seventies. Exactly. This is a seventies movie that came out in 1931, a 70s type ending. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And so it's in, in many ways, it's ahead, it as fanciful and romantic and everything as it is. It's, it's somewhat ahead of its time. And, uh, uh, re- remains that way, both in in the ending and in the, the, the performance that, that that Barrymore gives. Um, it, it's interesting to talk about the, the the film from the point of view of Barrymore because you know he was an incredibly handsome man. He was known as the great profile, and he, when he was a young man, he really did. He had this sort of like archangel handsomeness about him. Um, by the time he made Spengali, he was um, almost fifty. And he was still, you know, very dashing and everything. Uh, but he never really liked romantic roles. He liked he liked to play the horror roles. I mean, he played, when he played Hamlet on Broadway and was such a sensation, one of the things that he played up, for example, was the incestuous relationship with his mother, right, with Gertrude. And it was funny because Blanche Yurka, who had a signed picture from him that she enjoyed showing to people, uh, you know, she had a, this, this picture to her of Barrymore that he signed to her. And he put... Uh, you know, to Blanche from her wildly incestuous son, Jack, and uh, <laughs> side. Uh, but of course, the big thing that he did uh, around that time was the movie of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And this was uh, really, this was back in 1920, all right, the silent film of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he, he gave this remarkable performance in which, for at least part of the makeup, he didn't wear any makeup. He just distorted his face. He was able, he was such an incredible actor that he was able to do these horrible things with his face so that he actually seemed to be changing in front of the audience, in front of the camera, uh, without any special effects being done. Now, they actually were done. I mean, they cut away to his hands, for example. When they came back, they had put a, uh, a wig on him with a, and kind of a skull, you know, pointed head kind of effect and all these other kind of crazy things and, and changed his fingers around and, and did things to make him look more, more horrific. But but the, the first part of the transformation he could do uh, without any makeup. He could just by just by force of power and by this grotesque transformation he could do with his face, he could become Mr. Hyde. 
And it was a funny story, in fact, that was told late in his life by his wife, uh, his last wife, his fourth and final wife. Uh, they eventually divorced too, but but his wife Elaine, and when she was uh, when when they were together, um, he was basically behaving himself for a while, and he was a very tragic alcoholic. But at that point, he was only having one beer a night, and um, and one night he said, "Would you go and he said to her, would you go and get me my beer?" He said to Elaine, and Elaine said, "I'll go and get your beer, Jack, if you'll do." Mr. Hyde for me. And um, he said, oh, well, well, all right, you know, very casual. And he walked over to the fireplace. And first of all, he did Dr. Jekyll. He posed and very eloquent, elegantly and everything. And then he, then he took an empty glass and, and pretended to be, you know, quaffing down this drug. And all of a sudden he began to, you know, twist and turn and all, lowered, lowered his head and ran his hands through his hair and all this other crazy stuff. And he looked up and looked across the room at her. And as he looked at her, she said, she could not even recognize anything in his face. His face had like this almost totally changed. It is this horrible, horrible, twisted face. And he began like hobbling, you know, toward her, you know, with this horrible, lecherous, <laughs> terrible face. And she finally yelled, Jack, please, please stop, stop. They had a dog. The dog was going crazy. The dog was barking and carrying on where the stranger had come from into the house. And finally, he, you know, he, he stopped and cut it off and just like in an instant and said, oh, all right, um, you've had enough. I'm, I'm, that's fine. Uh, you know, and she went and got him and, you know, so, you know, she said he actually had, had forgotten about the beer. She didn't begin with beer that night. Um, he was so pleased with himself that he could still have this magic that he could do this. So he loved grotesque stuff and he loved being able to play grotesque characters. And so Spengali was right up his line and he basically persuaded Warner Brothers to film it even though at that time, already by 1930, when, when they first began to talk about a production, it was already an old property, all right? I mean, you know, it was a book that had come out, as you said, 1894. It was all these different, all the silent versions. It was all these plays, all right? And he said, but I like to do Spengali. And he said, well, he's John Barrymore. Let him do whatever he wants. And so they said, okay, you know, we, we can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go along with it and you can you can be Spengali. And, um and so we did. And so that it's interesting that fil film started shooting. I checked earlier today in, in one of my reference books, uh, the chapter of fact on it in a book I wrote called the very witching time of night, uh, very witching time of night. And it has a, a chapter on Spengali and it, um, and it was uh, January the 12th of 1931. And so Dracula had been finished, but hadn't been released yet. And they were, and Warner Brothers at universal and Warner Brothers meanwhile was starting Spengali. Um, and, um, you know, he went through all these makeup tests and came up with this incredible makeup with the, like in this, in this uh, Luciferian makeup that he wore in it with the beard and, uh, and everything. And he really was, you know, quite a sight to see just the sight of him was, was, uh, you know, it was really remarkable what, what he was able to do as far as transforming him. Um, it's, it's interesting that. You can almost say that in the story that the two leading characters are sort of a similar uh, impact, uh, Svengali, the hypnotist, and Trilby, the, the victim of the hypnotist. And it was very important, they felt, that they get the right actress uh, to play the part. And uh, they did a lot of testing. They almost got an actress from England named Evelyn Lay, who was very popular over there to come over, but at the last minute, things fell through with that. And so they started testing people, and eventually what happened, strangely enough, was they selected a 17-year-old girl uh, to play the part of Trilby, opposite 49-year-old you know, John Barrymore, who was arguably the most skilled actor in the world. 
And, um, you know, it, 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 she had to be absolutely perfectly right for the part, uh, for, for this even to have a hope of being successful. Um, and they selected this young girl, Marion Marsh, who many years later we became good friends with. And um, it was kind of funny. She said that uh, they tested her. And Barrymore, meanwhile, he loved, the, he loved the sail. He loved the cruise. And he had been down to the Amazon, I believe, and had caught jungle fever. Uh, you hear that expression, but he actually had, he had jungle fever. And he was confined to his home in Beverly Hills. And he was uh, you know, very, very ill and in bed. So he couldn't come in and test with her. So they tested her by herself and, and so on. And, and they liked what they saw. And they said, well, let, let's, we'll take her up to Barrymore and let him talk to her and see if, what he thinks. But he'll have final approval. So uh, Jack L. Warner at a Warner Brothers and Daryl Zanuck, who was a big producer there, and they took they took her up with her mother uh, up to Barrymore's estate, which is called Bella Vista, uh, up in the up in the mountains of Beverly Hills. And the house is still there. I've, I've gone up to gawk at it, you know, up in the magnificent estate that he had. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, she went up and she said that uh, you know they all went up into Barrymore's bedroom and he was all sprawled out in this enormous bed in this big enormous room like a king. And um, uh, then, as it turned out, the, the everybody been left and they left her in there with him, just the two of them to talk, see what kind of rapport they would have. And um, he looked at her and he said, um, "Do you know you look somewhat like my wife Dolores?" Uh, and uh, she said, oh, yes, people have told me that. And Barrymore said, Who's, who are these people? Who else has told you that? And Marion said, oh, the, the butcher who gives me liver to give me to my cat uh, uh, told me that. The, the butcher on Vine Street who gives me liver for my cat. Uh, <laughs> he, he, told, he thinks I look like, like your wife. Well, Barrymore thought that was hilarious. He cackled and laughed at everything, and he thought she's got this sort of, sort of spontaneity and innocence that she'll be perfect for Trilby. And so they cast her. So the movie started shooting, and again, you had this 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 incredible mismatch, really, of of, of John Barrymore uh, at the height of his powers, and Marion Marsh was just starting out, and uh, the two of them starring in this film together, and. Um, uh, uh, he, she she did actually I think very very well, and one of the reasons she did very well is because he was very patient with her. It was interesting. I mean, you heard a lot of stories about Barrymore in these days, and uh, he would frequently get drunk. He would run away from productions. He would disappear for days. He would he would misbehave in all kinds of crazy ways. All right, uh, and you know they have to send people out to drag him back to the studio, and he he be very tormented man behaved very tormented ways. But on this picture, he loved it. He was very committed to it. And he worked very, very carefully with her to make sure that she would come off as well as possible. And, uh, and she did. Uh, she had a little notoriety. There was this one scene in the film uh, in which she's supposed to be modeling and she's supposed to be completely naked. All right, so be au natural. And um, the, the way the camera set up, you see her in an art studio from a distance and uh, she's supposed to be naked. And actually, it is a double. It's a, it's an older actress, you know, who was over 17 years old, at least, uh, and wearing a body stocking. Uh, but from far off, she looks, you know, like she's genuinely, you know, oh, that's raw. And uh, it, it, it turns out a little Billy, the actor, Bramwell Fletcher, goes in and, and 
Caesar, Grandma Fletcher, some of your listeners remember in, from The Mummy, uh, Grandma Fletcher's the one that yells, you know, he went for a little walk and goes crazy. The blonde actor looks like a cherub. Uh, yeah, uh, well, he looks like, looks like a cherub in this, Bengali, too. Uh, at any rate, he uh, he goes in, Caesar, you know, posing in the buff, and he's completely, you know, destroyed by this. And she jumps down and goes running out of the room, and you get a rear view uh, angle of her going off, and you see, you know, you, she looks sure looks naked, you know, from there. So she became a rather notorious actress in Hollywood because she had played this naked nude scene, but it wasn't even her. I mean, for one thing, it was another girl, and then another the other thing was the other girl was wearing a body stocking, so it was a you know it, it wasn't as bad as everybody made it out to be, but um, but they played together very well. They had a very good, interesting, tragic kind of chemistry together uh, that worked uh, in, in the picture. And, um, and, and um, it, it was finally reached the ending of the, of the, of the film in which, in which uh, you know, uh, he is having heart trouble. As he has heart, tr- heart trouble and his heart gets weaker, his hold on her, his hypnotic hold on her gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And she, she'll like come out of, of the hypnosis and be her old self again for a moment until he can regain control. And they're in this uh, Cairo nightclub at the end. And little Billy shows up and um, she, uh, she gets up to sing. And uh, Spengali is conducting what is what there is of an orchestra in this nightclub. And uh, suddenly he has a heart attack. And this is a bad one, you know, this is going to be the big one. And he, um, he he falls down, and his familiar name Gecko catches him, and and uh, and he's there, and and uh, Trilby collapses, you know, and she just falls right down onto the stage, and little Billy runs up to her and says, you know, uh, you know, Trilby, Trilby, speak to me, it's Billy, it's Billy, and um, the camera goes to Barrymore, and Barrymore says. Oh God, grant me in death what you denied me in life, the woman I love, because she's never really loved him. You know, even though he's got her under the like trance, she's never. He, she's you know, it's all him. You know, I mean, he's, she, she's she doesn't love him. He's just it's just all stuff he's putting into her head. And incredibly, again, this this big shock for the audience is that Trilby turns away from little Billy and looks at. Bengali down there, you know, dying. And she says in this very romantic, lush voice, Bengali, and she dies. And she dies, Barrymore is just, he's like ecstatic, uh, you know, that she is going to join him in death. And he starts to sing. And it's, it's just a beautiful moment. I mean, it sounds, of course, very corny after all these years, but it's this little Hebrew song that Bengali knows, and he begins to sing it. He sings it to himself, and you know he's just in, in 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 such happiness that that he's going to have her for eternity. Drops his baton, and he dies, and the movie ends. All right, with that. And of course, when it happened, the audience sat there who saw it at the previous night and just sat there and thought, you know, I don't believe what I just saw. <laughs> you know, wait a minute, somebody made a mistake. You know, that girl should have gone out with those two 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 young, pretty blonde people should have gone off together at the end. Little Billy and. And Trilby, and you know, left Svengali there on the floor. But uh, no, no, Svengali wills her to accompany him to the grave, basically, in the film. And uh, you know, and that's the way it was going to go out, and that's the way it did. So, um, so it was very, very offbeat and very different than what was going to happen in Dracula. 
Now, here's the payoff. Movie came out about, you know, about two and a half months after Dracula did. All right. And it opens up in New York, May the 1st, 1931, and uh, starts to play around the country. And it is an absolute box office disaster. It is a disaster. And it's, it's, it's almost funny if it weren't so sad. The film cost $499,000 to produce. All right. It took in $498,000. All right. So again, cost $499,000, took in $498,000. When they did all the math with it and everything, the film ended up losing you know, well over $200,000. It was, you know, whereas a film like Dracula, all right, took in a, a worldwide like 200000 all right? I mean, it was, it was no comparison box office-wise between the two. Even though this film had Barrymore, even though this film, you know, was Warner Brothers, and which was basically a you know bigger commercial studio than Universal, all this sort of stuff, it just it just absolutely fell on its face uh, when when the public saw this twist on the on the story. And to make matters even worse, before Svengali was released, they made another movie that Barrymore liked called The Mad Genius, which was pretty much along the same way. All right, he played a, a, a genius dance teacher with a club foot, all right, who teaches a, a young boy to become a great ballet dancer. Marion Marsh is in it. She's a ballet dancer, too. Same kind of macabre, grand guignol story, all right? Uh, and that one, though, uh, he doesn't, you know, the, the girl didn't die, but he does. He dies this wild, savage death at the end of it. And that one came out, and that one ended up losing over $200,000. So with those two films combined, all right, Warner Brothers with Svengali and the Mad Genius lost about a grand total of close to half a million dollars <laughs> by doing what Barrymore wanted them to do and uh, making the kind of film he wanted to make and by letting him play the kind of role he wanted to play. So it didn't quite work out the way everybody had hoped it was going to work out. It turned out to be, it really turned out to be a gigantic flop. Um, but it is a remarkable film to see today for some of the reasons that you and I discussed earlier about the difference, the, 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 the offbeat ending, the, all the things, and, and some, some really great humor. It almost plays like a, in parts like a burlesque Dracula. You know, like a, a Dracula's a burlesque show. Uh, there's a lot of racy humor in the early part of it. There's a lot of funny comic things done with comic timing. There's, there's uh, uh, Barrymore for the first third of the movie plays the part pretty much as comedy rather than as tragedy, then very you know, skillfully and it glides into the tragic aspects of, of the character. And, um, but, you know, it just, um, it, 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 you never know in this business, in the show business, how things are going to go. And this one was a big surprise. Even though people came out, even interviewers came out, this is the greatest performance John Barrymore ever gave in films. This is him at his absolute height. This is, he has never been better. This is the film that we're remembering for. No, this is the film that, that lost uh, about $250,000 and a film that, you know, nobody realized was going to be such a bomb. <laughs> so, now, so there it is. <laughs> I thought it was interesting leading up to the climax, leading up to the end. Or the last, uh -huh. the last act, you you can tell that Singali knows it's going to be over, because and little Billy yes. 
for listeners that don't know, Little Billy has been pursuing them, going from place to place to, to, for the next show, and he keeps canceling the shows, canceling the shows, going yes. to smaller markets. But finally, his he, he, his health is so poor, he sees Little Billy there before he comes before the show is going to start, and he walks over to him to have a drink with him and to talk with him, and basically says that um, uh, it's going to end tonight you know, for all intents and purposes. And one of us, it, it's, she's going to decide which one of us she goes with. And he doesn't know yeah. which way it's going to play out. Whether, you know, what are his little, uh, whether she's going to take, choose him or, or little Billy. And so he knows that, that, that this is the end part. And what I find interesting with little Billy, and I think this could be why it didn't do as well box office wise. I don't know. He is the, the, the male hero but he doesn't really do anything mm-hmm. heroic. He pursues, but he doesn't do anything except show up at these places in case there's a show so he can watch him. It's, it's, it's like, he's not proactive to, he's proactive no. to an extent, but not to where you would expect a normal hero. And really Sungali goes down because of his health. I mean, it's nothing that the, the hero character does. It's, it's yeah, just, a very good point. It, mm-hmm. Except, except you could make an argument that little Billy, by his pursuit, caused Singoli's health to decline quicker. But that's almost like the Cold War with the Soviet Union and the U.S. Well, we'll just keep building the arms up, and eventually you wear out the Soviet Union. It's it's kind of like a it's anti climactic yeah. that way. That's precisely what he does. Yeah, and 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 he is. He's very much in the style of the of, of many of the of the early thirties. Uh, horror film, you know, quote, heroes, unquote, um, uh, in, in the sense that they're not very dynamic and they're not very uh, action, certainly not action figures. And, and um, that there, there's real no match for the villain from the point of view of, of, of many things, um, many, many qualities, uh, and certainly not in their proactive behavior. And, um, you know, they generally just kind of stand around and look well, good. <laughs> yeah, uh, is, is basically what they're usually the best at doing. But yeah, but that's what he does. That's exactly what you say is right on the money. He he basically just kind of wears him down and and causes him causes Bengali to uh, to 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 lose heart, uh, literally literally and figuratively, in the sense that he finally just does have this fatal heart attack, and um, you know that his dream doesn't really come true, and 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 something else that that. Um, Along those lines, there's a really quite remarkable scene uh, near the maybe at the eighty uh, percent mark in the film, in which Bengali's in this magnificently racy-looking boudoir with with uh, Trilby, and she's you know all gussied up in this beautiful negligee and everything, and her hair down and so on and so forth, and he's got this magnificent robe on, and and uh, you think that this is going to lead to some kind of lawmaking scene, and you think that it's going to happen because, again, Bengali's got her hypnotized, and he can make her do whatever he wants her to do. And and it, and sure enough, he proceeds. He kind of he kind of starts it off, and and uh, you know, and, 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 and gets the gets the hypnosis going, and um, and all of a sudden she looks at him, and she gets this wild look in her eye, and she says, "Oh, I love you, I love you." And gives him this passionate kiss, and then he breaks it off, and he says, "No, no, no, it's just Bengali talking to himself again." Uh, so, I mean, he doesn't even get that that enjoyment out of it that that you would think that he would, you know, would, would be there. Uh, this kind of not, a, not doesn't get affection, doesn't get uh, any kind of satisfactory sex, doesn't get any of this from it. 
Uh, you know, it all, all this theme he dreams of becomes a nightmare for him. Uh, so you really do have to pity him at the end to an extent because of the fact that, uh, yeah, he, you know, he plotted and seduced into all these nasty things to get where he is, but it all kind of just blew up in his face and none of it really worked. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just him. It's him making the music. It's him making her act passionately. It's him. He's, he's, he's a puppet master and the puppets just aren't real. You know, they're just, they're just human puppets. Uh, that 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 he has with with Trilby, so um, so yeah yeah it's a it's a very sad story in a very sick twisted way. Now going back to you talked earlier about his makeup and wardrobe choices, and I really enjoyed the way he looked too. You know because it gave him that that sinister look right off the bat. You knew yes. who the villain of the piece is, and for me it gave a um, more of a mad the Rasputin. Mad Monk Rasputin vibe to him. You yes, know? it did. Yes, yeah, yeah. In fact, it makes a lot of people wish that he had played Rasputin in Rasputin and the Empress, which they made the following year, rather than Lionel. That he would have given a a, a more uh, interesting portrayal. Um, and of course, part of that makeup uh, that that we should mention is the fact that he used these, these early contact lenses because what happened is when he would hypnotize, his eyes would like it would look like his eyeballs would disappear. Um, that, you know, he would open, he would close his eyes and open them up and there would just be like these big gaping white orbs there. Uh, and, um, that was, um, you know, that, that was, uh, very painful for him to do because of course if I, I, I used to wear contacts and I know how much trouble they could be, but, um, you know, if your eyes aren't used to contact lenses and some, somebody suddenly puts in a pair of them on your eyes, it's like, you know, how quick can you get these off? Because these are these are torturous, terrible things. Um, and so you can imagine with the big, thick, heavy ones that he was wearing that the makeup department had made, how difficult it would have been. But apparently everybody said, you know, again, he was an angel about it. He didn't complain. He didn't throw any very more fit or temperament about, about having to use them. He, he was completely cooperative. And... Um, uh, but it is, it is, it's a very, very uh, uh, gaping, unholy look that he has, particularly when he opens his eyes and there's no eyeballs. You know, he's got that sort of that, that, that horrible Daddy Warbucks look that, uh, you know, there's, there's no eyeballs. And uh, uh, he's uh, 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 with the hypnosis. And, um, and again, along with that, there's a, a marvelous scene where he hypnotizes her and you kind of see his will fly over the rooftops of the Latin Quarter, you know, like like the wind, and you follow the the, the signal to over to, to, to Trilby, um, where where she is, and he's you know, luring her to come to him uh, uh, again for for uh, his uh, for his nefarious reasons. And um, but um, so there's a lot of a lot of very very creative things in the film. The director who did it was named Archie Mayo who, uh, as it turned out, was most famous in Hollywood because of his hand buzzer. He, uh, he was well-known for going around to different, um, you know, he, when he would start a picture, he'd go up to all the stars, particularly the women, and say, you know, wonderful to meet you, and, you know, put his hand around them and put his hand on their hip in the back and, you know, press, and he'd have an electric hand buzzer on, and, you know, kind of thing, and he'd jump, and he thought that was hilarious. Um, but he, So he was a very coarse guy, and he was a very, you know, kind of a low-comic uh, sort of personality. But he directed some very good films for Warner Brothers, and he was uh, he was very good at melodrama, and um, uh, you know did some good stuff. 
And so he was he was very well qualified for that. And of course, when they did the Mad Genius, then it was it was uh, it was Michael Curtiz, you know, of Warner Brothers directed that one. And Curtiz, of course, was you know legendary for being the incredibly hard taskmaster and worker that he was. And so um, you know he and Barrymore didn't get along very well because of the fact that that um, you know they were both very dominant personalities, but. Um, but they, you know, they cooperated and they got through it. In fact, I think they got through that film in like something like 21 days, which is remarkable. You know, they shot it that fast. Um, but, you know, again, we're talking about the old studio system where no matter how big a star you were, you still worked according to that very stringent schedule kind of thing where, all right, we'll make this film, but we've got 24 days to make it or 21 days to make it or 36 days to make it or whatever. And, uh, you know, we do what we work till work to one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning or whatever we have to do to stay on that schedule. And if it meant Barrymore going around in that makeup, you know, from early morning to dawn till, till three o'clock in the morning, that's what they would do to, uh, to you know, try to keep everything, everything moving along and everything on, on, the, on time. I want to give the film a lot of credit for what Archie Mayo and Barney McGill, the cinematographer did was setting up the eyes. Because in the early the, yes. the opening scene with Madame Honoré, you know, where uh-huh. he's using that, you don't see him, dude. You, you got all you're getting is from his back, and you're seeing her reaction shots to the eyes yes. and talking about the eyes yes. and how you can just see how horrified she is and how she's going about right. it. And we don't, it happens off camera, but we find out from his faithful companion, Gecko, what happens to her, how she ends up in the river and the moor mm-hmm. and so on. And then, of course, later you get the shot, what you were describing with the hard contacts when he's hypnotizing um, Tr- um, Trilby and um, doing that part. But later, when he's using his eyes to hypnotize her again, down the road, there was one time they didn't use the hard contacts. They used um, one of the lights, you know, like, like, a, like um, a pointer light going off on his eyes. Mm-hmm. The, you know, which yes. reminded me of other movies. So I thought it was interesting how they used it different ways because that's three different methods of showing the hypnotism one where they're not showing it at all and you're seeing the right. reaction shot the other one where you got the really good hard contact look you know and then of course with the the little where you get to see his eyes and you get to see his acting with it so i thought it was interesting how they did the three different methods what, what did you think about that yeah, I think it was a very good, I think it's a very good point i think that and i think that it was they were they were each one worked in the spot where it was, you know, very well, because in the beginning it kind of filled up your curiosity as to what, you know, what was he actually doing with his face and his eyes uh, that had her so terrified that she went, you know, running, screaming out into the street and threw herself in the river. Uh, and then the second time he did it, you know, it was very dramatically built up and, you know, he's there and they come in for the camera and he slowly opens his eyes and you saw the, the hard contact bit. And then later a more, you know, uh, human, if you will, reaction with the, uh, you know, with the with the beams and the the, the, the the different lighting, with that that kind of, you were able to kind of see him uh, and his emotions more uh, with the way that they played it up. Yes, that, that was a very good point. And and um, and again, it's interesting that these guys, you know, they, they did everything. I mean, these these these, these the, the, the fellows that you mentioned, the the director with, with and and the cameraman and all this. And you know, they, and they would do something like this at Warner's, and then maybe a week later they'd be working on a on some kind of uh, slapstick comedy, mm-hmm. or they'd be working on some kind of, uh, of a, you know, mystery film, or they'd be working on uh, a gangster picture or whatever, you know, uh, you know, and they had to have all these tricks in their bag, 
uh, to pull out whenever they would when it was, when it was or whatever was necessary uh, to, uh, to 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 get get the most effect. And um, you know, it was, it was an incredible uh, incredible skill. Uh, and, and, you know, not just not just uh, not just the inspiration of the moment, but an incredible skill that they had to have this stuff at their at their beck and call all the time to pull back on to to to, uh, to make it work. So I think they had a lot. Of, they all had a lot of fun on this picture with with you know trying out these effects and and um, you know I'm, I'm I'm sure a lot of it they were glad when it was over. I'm not sure Barry Moore couldn't couldn't wait to get those lenses. I remember Mary Moore saying that he really couldn't wait to. You know, to get those lenses off when they would put them in, the whole soundstage would get deadly quiet. Nobody would make a sound while they put the lenses in, and then he would do the scene. And as soon as he had the scene done, people would rush to him and you know, get him down and get the lenses off and and everything, so that before he you know could get too terribly uncomfortable. Uh, so, um, so yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a very good point, Steve. And the other thing I was noticing and i think it's interesting how in this movie you fall you follow the villain for the most part you're following his story uh-huh. which it's of course it's named after him and how they introduce him in the first third of the movie compared to the second third compared to the end the end part the end act and the first part as you said it's very comedic you know he's he's the charming rogue you know he's doing these things right. you know now not counting what he did to um madam honore but the other parts, it's like you're, 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 he did this horrific thing, scaring her out. Of course, we learned later on he's a hypnotist. We didn't know it at that time. you know. So at the time in the movie, you wouldn't uh-huh. know. And you just know him as a cad that that's, you know, was using this woman to try to get the money. When she ends up leaving her husband, he has, finds that she has no money. He no longer has a use for her. And then, of course, right. Gecko goes to him late in the next scene, like, oh, we need to get food. We're both hungry. We, we Or to pay the rent. And he goes, oh, we'll just go around. And he ends up, you know, being mm-hmm. d- 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 the charming rogue. So now you're starting to fall in love with this little character because he's doing this roguish stuff. And everybody knows he's this way. You know, like he's going to take money from you. you got to be careful. Hide the purse. All this stuff. And it's a great scene. Um, very fun how he ends up with the money and the suit and all this stuff in the bathtub. I mean, how he, they uh-huh. think they got him and all that stuff. And the second part of the movie, when he takes full control over our heroine or heroine and, and and have her being affected. That's when you realize, Hey, Oh, he's, he's more evil, you know, more, it goes back to more of the Madame Honoré, the Madame Honoré type part. And I find it interesting that the last part, you know, when he's going, when he's suffering his comeuppance and his health is wearing down, I think the movie, I didn't feel this, but you obviously stated you did how you felt pity for his character you know, how he, you know, didn't get the thing. And I think that was the movie was trying to do. It's like develop these relationships. You're, you're like, well, he does these bad stuff, but look at all these funny things he's doing, all this humorous <laughs> stuff he's doing. He's really lonely. He's really doing it for the art. And you feel this, this going about it in a poor way, but you feel this, this, this um, pity for him where I felt it was like, basically, as you said, his heartbreaking because he realized he was never going to get his love in this world. And it yes. was, and, and, but also he was doing bad stuff and it was coming to an end at this point. And what, what is it going to be in the next life? Who knows? So I didn't have the pity mm-hmm. for him, but I, I did have a lot of pity for her. And I thought it was interesting now how the movie can be seen in different lenses and how people can react to his performance and the directing and the writing in different ways. And I think the humor did a lot with it. And from what I read, and I'm going to, 
double check with you. He really pushed for uh, more humor to be added to his character, I guess, to help him with that trans that transition. Yes, he wanted. He said he wired the uh, writers uh, right off the bat and said, you know, you have to make the first part of the film funny because uh, if you don't, it'll just get too dark and too depressing and too, you know, it, we won't won't be able to really do anything with it. Uh, as, as far as saving it as entertainment, you know, we have to we have to we have to make him funny to make him to make him an interesting character, uh, and play up the humor in the beginning. But I think, um, yeah, I think that at the end, when 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 he realizes what has happened, and he and he, you know, he he's again he sings and he and he dies for that instant of, of incredible joy. It is, of course, very good for him. I think you made an excellent point when you said that you feel sorry though for her. Because I think many people who went to see the film felt the same way. I think they felt sorry for her. I felt. I think Mary Marsh had a lot of natural uh, charisma on screen. She was very charming. She was very beautiful, um, and and her characterization in the early part before she's hypnotized is is uh, you know very realistic. I mean, she's kind of a racy young Latin Quarter girl who who was there, but I mean, her heart's in the right place, and it's 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 established that. You know, if her if her love life is a little overactive, it's because she, you know, she she feels like she should be grateful to men who have helped her, and you know, she, she her heart's in the right place. But you know, she, she should have more self control, perhaps. What uh, is what they're saying? But uh, but I think that that was a problem, and I think that that's a problem that goes on. Um, you know, in in a lot of films, a lot of plays, a lot of books. And so on. That's a major concern is about killing off a character. Uh, is is it a smart thing to do, or is it a is it a terrible mistake to do? And um, an example is that uh, different film entirely, but uh, the 1939 western Destry Rides Again, all right, with Marlene Dietrich and James Stewart, was also years later, about 20 years later, it was a musical comedy on Broadway. And in the movie, at the end of the film, uh, Marlena Dietrich dies, all right? She's shot by Brian Donnelly, who's actually trying to kill James Stewart. And, and uh, she dies in James Stewart's arms. And, and uh, you know, the movie ends shortly after that. And uh, I think she kind of probably had to die in the movie because of the production code, because she was going to be a floozy and a dance hall girl and stuff like that. So I guess they insisted on it. But um, sometime later, uh, I directed a production of the show at the Spotlighters Theater in downtown in Baltimore, and we it, 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 the, the musical libretto, uh, the musical script followed the um, the uh, the movie very very closely until the end. At the end, what happened was that the hero Destry and the, the leading lady Frenchie walked off together out of the saloon arm in arm, and that's how the show ended. And when I directed it, I remember saying, "That's a terrible ending." You know, she's supposed to get killed at the end. She has to get shot at the end. Um, you know, the, 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 it doesn't have any impact unless she gets shot at the end. So we have to, we have to, um, we have to, we have to do her in. All right, she has to get shot by the bad guy accidentally, and then Destry has to shoot the bad guy. And uh, you know, that's that we have to do this to make it work. And so we changed it. You know, and it was simply a case of you know, instead of them walking out at the end, you know, the bad guy ran in with a gun, shot her. Destry turned around, and shot him. Uh, he held her in her arms till she died, and then, you know, the lights went down and planned it. The audience hated it. <laughs> <laughs> they hated it. All right? 
And uh, somebody said, I saw this in New York, and I don't remember that she died. I don't remember that. And I said, well, we changed it. Whose idea was that? That was a stupid idea to change it, that she died. You know, I mean, it was a big outcry that, that, that she had been killed because people went to the show. They wanted, they wanted to have a good time. They wanted to enjoy themselves. They wanted to like the, you know, like the characters. They liked her. And they thought that this was a really bad, bad, bad idea. You know that she was going to that she got killed at the end, and um, if we had run longer, I would have changed it back so that you know they just walked out. But you know it was only a month's run, so we kept it the way it was. But uh, but you're absolutely right, and that is that if an audience goes to a, to a movie and they really say, "I really like this character," "I really like that character," and in the case of Trilby, this character is really cute. She's really lovely. Uh, you know, I can understand where she's coming from. I feel sorry that she's been hypnotized by this sinister character. Um, you know, what a, what a terrible thing that she's been robbed of her personality. And now you're going to ask us after all this to sit here and put up with the fact that she's been killed. Uh, no way I'm going to tell all my friends not to go see this movie because it's got a horrible ending. So I think that that very well could have been, um, again, it, 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 the, the ending works two ways. I mean, you can either go to see it and say, oh, good, that's a good refreshing ending in which, you know, actually the girl and, you know, the, the heroine belongs to the villain and, you know, that's, that's a good way to change it, a good way, you know, something new and different and, and uh, makes sense. Or you can go to see it and say, uh, no, that doesn't work at all. You know, that's, this, is, this is make-believe. You should be able to make-believe at the end that there's a happy ending. And, and she and little Billy, she gets up off the floor and little Billy takes her and walks her off into the wings. And they go out and watch the sunrise over Cairo over a pyramid or something. And, you know... <laughs> <laughs> they, they have a happy ending. Um, so no, I think you're right on the money. I think that the, um, I think that 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 was that was probably something that really really hurt the film. Like I say, when they did the follow up, the Mad Genius, which of course was not Spengali, but of a, 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 a similar screwball character for Barrymore and uh, and Marion Marsh. Marion Marsh did end up, you know, happy at the end with the uh, with the leading man, and that's not, nothing uh, nothing harmed her. And um, and everybody was glad to see Barrymore killed at the end because he was kind of a you know he was a lunatic in, in the film and and you know you expected to see Barrymore die because it's what it's what he did all right I mean he you know even in a movie where he played a lover like Grand Hotel he dies all right or Dinner at Eight he's some famous suicide scenes and that sort of thing I mean you audiences seem to like enjoy watching John Barrymore die it just was part of his shtick you know he was going to die but but not 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 a sweet little seventeen year old star like Marion March. So uh, that very well could have been a major, a major explosion in the face of the film as far as it being accepted at the time by the public and maybe even being accepted now, you know, by, by the public. I think it could. For it, people who see it, Turner and so on. I think, as you brought up earlier, it probably, one reason was that, two, it, the story had been shown on film at that time multiple times and there were multiple plays times. running. And so mm-hmm. people might it also could be just too much of the same thing at that particular exactly. time. So a lot of factors, I think, went into the box yeah. office yeah. tanking. Yeah, yeah. And they might, they might have said, well, you know, the gamble they took, they said, well, yeah, but you never saw John Barrymore do it. All right. I mean, you, you haven't lived to use him Barrymore place, Bengali. And um, and like we say, he was he was wonderful. But but uh, the, the, the play's content remains the same. And uh, the, 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 the dark ending remains the same. And um, so uh, it, it's, it was a, it was a you know, I, I don't have any, I've never seen any kind of correspondence from, from Warner Brothers about them debating the ending. Um, 
you know, or, or, or saying, do you think we should put in a retake or, or a revised ending where Trilby lives or something of that nature? But I would bet that they discussed it, that they thought about it and thought, don't you really think maybe we should play a little bit around with this ending? Let's spend golly die. Let Barry Moore have his death scene. Let him milk it and have a good time and so on and so forth. And let the audience watch him die and say, wow, what an actor. But, um, you know, don't, don't, don't take a, a, a virtual kid like, like, with, like, like this girl and, uh, you know, have her die on the, you know, flat on her back on the floor of a dirty nightclub stage. <laughs> you know, that's just, you know, that's just pushing it. <laughs> now, I thought it was interesting in the book, he, um, when he, when he, Singali's going to die, it's his, his, his buddy, his compatriot Gecko is the one I think that mm-hmm. does it hits gets him off a night because he was just sick of seeing how he was treating her, you know, in, in the yeah. book and things like that. So he it was proactive in his demise. So it wasn't just like a mm-hmm. heart related issue, that kind of stuff. It makes me wonder if the movie would have shown that turn where he's seeing this on and at the last act where as they're going from place to place and he's seeing the way she's being treated and and how these things are going on. And if he was the one that maybe start, like maybe he did the knife thing. And then Singali goes into the club, sees little Billy there, does the same conversation, knowing that he's bleeding out, so to speak. Um, and uh-huh. wants to do this performance. I wonder if that would have helped the movie at all. It definitely would have changed Gecko's character because he's basically would, yeah. comedic yeah. relief, but it would have, I think it would have mm-hmm. showed that there was somebody uh, doing a heroic act that actually was mm-hmm. proactive in getting it done. And maybe that right. proactive part would have helped it. I don't know. I mean, we're sick. It, we'll never know because it's, you know, the past is the past, but I'm just curious what you thought about if that ending would have been altered a little bit with Gecko having more of a hand in it as it was in the book and the source material. Yeah, it might've been, uh, I think that probably the problem they would have run into there would have been focused uh, on the character uh, and in which the point that um, I don't, I, I don't think with for all his talent, I don't think Barrymore was at all a, 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 a scene hauled, at least most of the time. I mean, he was always very generous to his other actors and and try to let them, you know, make sure that they had good moments and and and, and, and good opportunities and so on and so forth. But at the same time, in in the uh, you know in the course of the film, um, in which they have about eighty minutes or whatever to tell it. Um, I, I don't know if he would have wanted to have given too much of the focus away to Gecko at that point in the story of um, making him too important. You know, maybe he, I think probably Barrymore would say, well, for this to work, you're going to have to really kind of keep the focus on Spengali and, and, um, and you know, what he's trying to will to happen and what he's trying to make occur and how he's trying to kind of make the world spin around here uh, as he's dying. Um, it would be great for Louis Alberni, who played Gecko uh, and who was a friend of Barry Moore's, you know, to have had this 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 nice bit uh, in here to, to to play this up. But uh, you know, uh, you know, we only have so much time. So, and uh, it does say John Barrymore in Bengali, so let's keep it John Barrymore in Bengali. You know, a kind of uh, kind of attitude is what he probably had. Uh, Louis Alberni answered and of course, gets a terrific uh, scene at the end of The Mad Genius. Uh, you know, he, he kills Barrymore with an axe. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he goes crazy uh, from dope withdrawal, Alberni does, and then he attacks Barrymore with an axe. And so um, if there was any kind of resentment that carried over from Spengali, that he got, he got it, you know, he got plenty to do in uh, the next one. <laughs> so, uh, 
Uh, and of course, it didn't help because that film didn't do that well either. But for different reasons, I think people said, you know, I think when the Man of Genius came out, they probably said, oh, no, you don't know. I, I, I saw Sven Galley. I'm not going to go see none of those things with Barry Moore, you know, doing that, all that crazy shtick. So, um, so they didn't. But, um, you know, it all, it all depends. It all, it, it all depends on what, what a particular audience member likes what, or, what, or doesn't like or, or choices. I mean, it's every, it's, it's, um, uh, I think that that most people, um, you know, uh, I, I know back when I used to teach school, school, and I remember teaching of mice and men, and that you know there were many students uh, who understood, for example, the, uh, the ending of a mice and men, but didn't like it. I mean, they said, you know, they should have he should have come up, John Steinbeck could have come up with, should have come up with something else rather have George shoot Lenny. I mean, there there had to have been some other kind of alternative that that could have been done. And so, uh, even though that's the real power of the story is how it ends, um, you know, even with that, uh, there's always going to be somebody who's going to say, no, I think it would have worked better if it would have been done, done this way or it would have worked better if it done that way. And finally, somebody, you know, at the 11th hour generally has to say, hold it, that's it. We're going, you know, we're going path A, path B, path C, whatever. And uh, that's what occurs. I was just curious because being the one, you know, the source material had it one way and the, and the movie did a different way. You always wondered it because when you deviate from the source, then you're, I think it, you're allowed justified questioning. That's okay. You decided to go a different route, um, and, and and people you know can be justifiably upset because if you had read the the book, then going into this, you would be thinking, wait a minute, this would go a different route. I always understand, and and you do too, when people are taking a book and they're translating it into a different medium, like television or movies there's always going to be uh-huh. things that are going to be altered or different characters are going to be combined together and so on, because there's certain things yeah. you can't do sure. in a movie that you mm-hmm. can do in a book and vice versa. And I think what I like uh-huh. about this though, is the use of the visuals telling the story. And it, there's not a lot yeah. like sometimes you have movies that do the um, narrative where they're giving the, 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 um, the voiceover and that kind of stuff. And they're telling about different things that are happening because they're trying to shorthand in all this other stuff. This one really doesn't do that at all. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's cinema, you know, the cinematography of it does show the whole thing. You could tell it's all pretty much done on a stage, you know, or, or, or right. mm-hmm. and how they go. I love the set design. I thought that was well. And I really particularly like, how they did the forced perspective shot of her performing when little Billy and his two compatriots from England um, are all there to watch. And then, because they see Sungali, it's been years. They thought she was dead and mm-hmm. you know, it's her. We, we the audience, the, the, the watchers know it's her, but they don't know. And they're so far back and the way they shot it is to show you that they really can't tell who it is because they're so far back. They can't get the opera glasses. They can't really see. And I thought that was shot yeah. very well to, to force oh, yeah. that. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it and it, it made, and it you know, added great tension to the movie, you know, as far as, you know, how are they going to react when they do realize that it actually is her and, uh, and is she going to be somehow close enough to them that she can feel the vibes coming from them, that it might throw her off her, you know, off of her performance, off of her hypnosis uh, situation that, uh, that she won't sing that well that night uh, or something of that nature. Um, so um, 
Yeah, it's cool. It, it's a cool story. I mean, it can go all, all kinds of different directions. And, you know, it's funny to think that it, they made a, what, a 1983 TV movie with Peter O'Toole and Jodie Foster updated the story. And, you know, but basic, basic ingredients to, to, an, to an extent. Um, but, um, you know, there's this, this, this basic story about it, about being uh, domination and power and, and escape, trying to escape from that domination, trying to escape from that power, uh, making peace with it, not making peace with it. Uh, whatever it may be, uh, you know, uh, is the person who is is in the dominant situation actually happy being there? Uh, or, or, you know, now that they have achieved this dominance, is it is it fulfilling for them, or is it torture for them? Uh, now that they've accepted it, um, you know, all these kind of questions that come to mind that um, you know that can go in all kinds of different directions. And I think that's a sign of a good movie is when you can talk about it afterwards with the different questions and stuff like that. And I like movies where they don't spell out everything, taking taking advantage of the medium that they're showing and doing. And there's a lot of movies that are still filmed today. I mean, you can go out there and it's like they, they, they spell everything out. It's like, come on, just leave some things up there for our imagination. Let us trust the list, trust the viewer to fill in the blank and be able to get from uh-huh. point A to point B to point C. Yes, there are going to be some that are going to go from A to B to D and, and miss C, but then they'll, but the thing is, is they'll talk to other people that they're seeing the film with, and then they can say, oh, no, there's that part there. They showed this, or maybe on a subsequent viewing, they'll pick that up. And then I think that's one of the nice things about cinema overall is yeah. that you get that nice joy of rewatching things or talking to other people that have seen it and get a different perspective. And, and I think talking to you about it has helped me with different perspectives with, because I didn't see the film until you brought it up and I've watched it twice before you and I did our discussion. And it uh-huh. was just, I've always heard about it, but I never had the time to watch it. And people say, you haven't watched this or that. And I always say, there's millions of films out there. You can't watch them all. And then, Luckily, That's right. people, you're going to miss something. Yeah, you're going to miss something until somebody says, "Hey, let's watch this." And that's the beauty of the show is that I got people picking different films, and it's it adds another one to um, the to my catalog. It's like, oh, I've seen this one, and then, and then which a lot of times will lead to other films because if you like that one, yeah. then you want to see more. Yeah, it's cool. It's it, it, it's a very good it's a very good point, and it's it's a. Uh, it really is it's a very different kind of movie of a very different uh, ending uh, and uh, certainly a very different type of, of uh, performance by both the stars. Uh, you know, not, not, not the kind of characterizations you're going to see every day, even in uh, movies made back in the early 30s, you know, with that kind of uh, that far out on the melodramatic ridge uh, of the way they played it. Yeah, you know, it's funny that um, uh, Marion March, of course, was very, very proud of the film and Apparently, when she left Warner Brothers, they let her take a number of things from the picture that uh, you know they weren't going to use anymore. And but they get they, they said, "Yeah, sure, take these along." And for example, she had one of the paintings uh, of her that had been done for the film that she had uh, in her living room uh, down in Palm Springs, and um, and she and it was also it was kind of funny. I didn't realize this until she was gone. Uh, and that was that uh, she had saved, you know, the, to change the, the character gradually, the appearance of Trilby, they had her wear a variety of different hair pieces and wigs all through the picture. And um, uh, when she, uh, after she passed away, 
her daughter consigned a lot of her memorabilia to heritage auctions. And I was working there at the time in Texas and cataloged a lot of it. And, um, so it was, <laughs> it was very strange. I sat there at my desk and I was cataloging, uh, all the, all that hair and my, you know, my entire work desk was covered with blonde hair of, of, of different sizes and lengths and styles and everything all, o- all over the place. Yeah. It looked like somebody had run through there and scalped, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> various trilbies over, over the centuries, uh, you know, and it just was all this, all this hair. And so sure, sure enough, it ended up in the catalog and, you know, they were, they had a picture of all these separate hair pieces and, you know, what the opening bid was. I don't remember what it was or how, how much they went for, but, uh, that was, um, that was, uh, that was still, um, that, that was, uh, you know, it was one of the things that she had kept for all those, uh, all those years, uh, what were those, uh, you know, all those relics from, uh, from Svengali. <laughs> Nice lady, very very nice lady, and um, uh, I'll just mention this briefly. If anybody wants to read the full account, they can read it in the. Uh, in, if they, they like to pick up the um, very witching time of book I mentioned, but I talked about uh, Barrymore being so interested in the in the grotesque and the, the the macabre, and you know his great dream had been to be an illustrator, illustrate the works of Edgar Allan Poe definitively, but. Um, he died, as mentioned, in 1942, and his son, who was is Drew's, was Drew's father, his, the uh, John Drew Barrymore, who has since passed away. Um, uh, the, the story about him having moved his father's body, did you, had you heard that? Or? No, no. Yeah. Yeah, this, again, I don't know how far into this we want to go, but but apparently about 1980, uh, his father had died again, 1942, and he was uh, buried in a crypt at uh, Calvary Cemetery, which is Catholic Cemetery in East Los Angeles. And um, John Drew Barrymore, who was, uh, had a lot of problems, uh, got it into his head that his father wanted to be buried in Philadelphia and wanted to be buried in Philadelphia with with his ancestors. And so um, in what, 30, 38 years after Barry Moore had died, um, he apparently forged a lot of papers and, and guided the family to sign a bunch of signatures and things of that nature. And he went out to, um, to Calvary cemetery and he said, I would like to take possession of my father's, remains and move them and, um, you know, get them out of here. I don't want them. I don't want them here anymore. And, um, you know, they looked at the papers and according to the fake papers he had, that you know, the Catholic church had, had given permission and the, the, the family always was, you know, together on it and so on and so forth. And they said, well, we really can't, you know, protest this. So yeah, if you want to move, move him, we'll, we'll arrange for a crew to be there to, disinter your father uh, on a particular date. So he went there, John Drew Barrymore went there with a bunch of his buddies uh, one day. And um, sure enough, they went up to the, to the, uh, to the crypt. And um, uh, the, uh, I think the crew that they had sent around had gone off for lunch. So they did it themselves. They took the tools and they, they, they got into the crypt and they took the casket out and um, took it to, um, took it to an odd fellow's crematory in Los Angeles. And, um, they, you know, they said, what's this? And he said, I'm John Drew Barrymore. And you're looking at the casket in, which can hold the remains of my father, the celebrated actor, John Barrymore. 
and um, I, I want you to uh, cremate him because I want to take his ashes to uh, Philadelphia to bury them there. And um, so again, you know, the crematorium worker said, well, you know, you have the right papers. Like, I can't say no, so I'll do it. So apparently John, before he started, so I said, stop. And he said, I want you to open it up so I can see his body. And, um, you know, the, the, the crematorium worker said, said you know, I, I beg you not to do this. This is not going to be in your best interest, you know, to, to do this. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be good for you. And he said, I don't care. I want you to, I want you to open it. I don't want you to, I want, I want to be able to see, see my father. And so, um, you know, he, he basically opened it up. And of course they're looking at a, at a body that's been buried for 38 years. All right. But they were able to recognize it by certain features. And sure enough, he had it cremated and he took it to philadelphia i won't mention the cemetery but it's a very it was, it's a very very rundown cemetery now where uh you know homeless people live and they've broken into the crypts and are living in the mausoleums and it's it's the place is a real horror show and uh he took it back to a plot and um apparently uh from from what i was told he basically dug the grave by hand john drew barrymore did and put the the um the uh, the urn you know, down in there, and then got a, a marker that has Barry Moore's name on it. So the last poor York from Hamlet on it, and put it in place, and um, uh, and and so that's where uh, his uh, his his ashes reside. Uh, I just told you basically the the somewhat antiseptized version of the story. It's it's really a horrible story, so I spared the most the terrible details. But I mean that it, it, I, I wonder sometimes if Barrymore would have either been appalled by that or but enjoyed it because again he had this remarkably macabre sense of humor, and maybe he would have enjoyed a you know a joyride like that thirty eight years after he <laughs> after he died. I don't know, but uh, of course he's you know John John Drew Barrymore is gone now and and um, Drew carries on the family name and um, there's a restaurant in. In, in Hollywood, uh, Musso and Frank, famous restaurant. And as you go back towards the men's room uh, and, and ladies' room, there is a, a, an old poster on the wall, and it has a picture of John Barrymore from, from one of his silent films, I believe. And um, whenever you go by it, it has, uh, where his face is, there is female lipstick all over his face. Uh, on on the pane of glass, you know, covering the covering the poster, and um, people always ask, you know, the the, the manager at at uh, and Frank to say, how come, you know, this is like that? How come, you know, you allow, you know, this this to be defaced with this lipstick? And they said, well, because that's actually Drew Barrymore's lipstick. When whenever she comes here to eat and goes back to use the ladies' room, she stops and she she kisses the poster that has her father's picture on it, and tells us to leave their lipstick mark on it. So um, they're a very strange family, uh, the, the, the Barrymores. They, they always were, they always have, probably always will be. I don't know if Drew has any children, but um, it, it, it is a rather peculiar brood. And, um, uh, you know, when you, when you watch them in their movies, you kind of almost have to put that into perspective, the fact that you're watching a very, very dysfunctional family and a very, very... Um, uh, brilliant, but but remarkably self-destructive 
group of people uh, at work. And uh, it's sad. You know, it, it is sad. It, 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 it sometimes it sometimes makes you wonder what if 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 having that kind of incredible talent uh, leaves you that messed up. Is the talent worth it? Um, was the talent worth it? I mean, considering all that Barrymore went through in his life, all the misery and sadness, and in and, and his later years and, and his terrible uh, downfall he had, you know, I mean, you, you figure he might have been much happier if he had had, you know, ten percent as much talent and and uh, you know spared himself all of that kind of uh, uh, terrible existence that he had in his later years. So uh, anyway, that's my uh, metaphysical speech for the. Uh, <laughs> the duration at this point but uh, just something just something to ponder uh yes they were they were the greatest actors of their generation but b did they pay for it uh dearly yes they did and um it, that's a shame it is a shame and we all know drew has her own demons that she's been going with so i think like you said it just seems to be this this thing that goes along with the family um yeah in that aspect yeah yeah yeah, and John apparently John Drew Barrymore really had a lot, as as that story suggests about the about moving his father's body. Apparently, he really had problems, and of course, he was he was Drew's father. So, so I don't know, Drew, you know, Drew's had a lot, and I know it's, it's been well publicized that she's had a lot of problems, but it is remarkable that she does keep, um, you know, apparently she's she's got a grip enough on things that she keeps working and she stays active and she's uh, very successful and. Uh, you know, she handles her career well, and um, uh, you know, I'm 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 hoping that uh, for her and that for the whole family's sake, that you know, she manages to pull through this and kind of you know, defy the curse that everybody says was on the family, and and eventually settled into a very very profitable career and a happy life. So, pulling for you, Drew. Yes, we are, and and I want to say again, Greg, thanks again for picking this movie. Oh, you're very welcome. And I'm hoping you'll come on again on the show down the road for a different movie. If you sure. can. Uh, which, uh, Anytime. You can let me know what movie you want to pick. And um, again, um, tell listeners about a couple, you know, we talked about a couple of your books already, but are there any other books that are you're working on are going to be coming out sometime in the near future that you can mention, or do you want to talk about some of your ones mm -hmm. that you've done before? Well, uh, one thing I should mention is that we, uh, you know, there is the script from the crypt series that uh, has been very popular lately that Tom Weaver has edited. And uh, we have a new book coming out um, on the mummy's ghost that um, uh, I wrote the production uh, history for it. But a lot of writers have contributed to the book, a lot of, a lot of really good, interesting, offbeat, crazy stuff about the making of that movie and its legacy and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that you wouldn't think that the mummy movies would have that much uh, uh, clout anymore, but they really are very popular and uh, people got a big kick out of them. They've, they've seemed to have taken a whole, whole new lease on life uh, in recent years uh, with fans. And um, this book has a lot of, 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 of completely fresh material that, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, the staff has put into it. And, um, it should be out very, very shortly, in fact, uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks, maybe even sooner, uh, because uh, the proofing should be all done. And I think that, uh, I, I think, I think uh, the, the readers, uh, the, particularly the, the, uh, the horror genre readers, uh, will, get, will get a bang out of it. It's, um, you know, uh, those films were, those films were wild. They were a lot of fun. And <laughs> they, uh, they uh, you know, had their own little folklore going and, and uh, you know, all the difficulties that, 
that uh, Cheney Jr. encountered making them. And again, again, there's another semi-tragic character to talk about. Uh, and uh, the different people in them. And of course, the wonderful John Carradine is in The Mummy's Ghost and the superb George Zuko and and uh, all these things. And so it's a, it's, it's a fun book. And I think that, uh, I think that, you know, if, if you're a horror fan, I think you'll get a, get a big kick out of it. I'm looking forward to it. Other things in the works, but hmm? I'm looking forward to right. it. I'm looking forward to oh, it. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I think I think I think you'll enjoy it. I'm sure I'm sure it'll definitely be out. Uh, like I say, I'm sure it'll be out by Christmas, and uh, and you know there'll be copies of it, of course, with the Monster Bashes coming up and so on and so forth. So, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it is forthcoming. Awesome. And again, listeners, his books are available readily available at Amazon.com. I mean, of mice and men, mental enfeeblement, racism, and mercy killing in 1939 Hollywood. I recommend it. It's 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 a great read, and definitely get the. If you don't own the movie, you can get a copy of the movie and a copy of the book, and that way you can watch the movie, read the book, or switch it around whichever way. I think it probably for me, I'd recommend watching the movie, read the book, then rewatch the movie with the insights from the book. And I think that's probably the best way to go about it. I think so too. Yeah. I think that, I think that would, that, that works, that would work very well. And um, you, you won't get tired of the, of the, of the, of the film. You know, it really is. Um, it, it, it really is it's so powerful and the acting is so natural ahead of its time and, and everything, the photography and the direction by Lewis Milestone and everything. It's, it's, it's a, it's a superb film. Really, really great movie. And again, I want to thank you again for joining me. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure, and I look forward to doing it again soon. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode, and uh, Mr. Mank and I will be doing other episodes down the road as our schedules work out and that kind of stuff, so I hope everybody enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the next time we do an episode together and also seeing him again at Monster Bash. Um, we did receive some feedback from our 200th episode on Facebook. Uh, Frederick Cooper um, gave a couple of comments. Um, one of them was incredible episode and also congratulations on 200 episodes, Steve. What an absolute stellar accomplishment. And I want to thank Frederick for giving us that feedback. And also, if you go on Facebook and look up Frederick Cooper, you can find out he's an incredible artist and um, you can get a lot of his artwork through him. So if you go to his Facebook page, you can find out where his website is and so on. I'll try to put the website into the, the notes section so you can click on it and look at some of that wonderful artwork that he has. And I just want to thank Frederick for the compliment, and I'm glad he enjoyed the episode, um, episode 200. I really enjoyed recording with Sam Irvin again. He's just a wonderful guy. And for those that want to leave feedback, you can email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com, and that way you can email a note or a voice message you, know, you can record and send, or you can leave us messages on our Facebook site, as Frederick did. He actually left it on my personal one, but, I mean, either way, I'll see them all. I just want to thank everybody for listening, and I hope everybody is having a great December and gearing up for the holidays. We have some wonderful episodes coming out later this month, so I hope everybody enjoys it. And as one of the things I want to be thankful for is having people that have been on the show before, like Rod Barnett and his good friend Troy Gwynn. So I'm going to leave a little pro- leave a 
the promo. I'm going to play the promo for the Bloody Pit for you. And I highly recommend you listen to the show where Rod has different movie discussions where Troy's frequently on. And Troy's going to be joining us later this month on Christmas Day when him and I talk about the 1970 version of Scrooge. So I hope everybody will enjoy that episode when it comes out also. So have a great day. And now on to the Bloody Pit promo. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. 